you know, a lot of so-called sustainability-oriented businesses were focused on issues that were relevant to their affluent customers, such as the environmental impact, and not thinking about low-income members of society. So those issues of economic justice and racial justice have been brought to the fore, which I think is good. This is the CMO and Joe podcast. We interview today's most inspiring chief marketing officers and savvy marketers of lucrative direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies, bringing you insightful stories and tips on marketing, sales, branding, and much more. We bring you the best lessons from the best. Let's get started with your host, Joe Momo. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thank you, Joe. It's great to be here. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. You have a wealth of uh, experience in um, in the nonprofit and for-profit industries, along with e-commerce and marketing and business strategies. So you're just going to be it's going to be a fun conversation, I think. But uh, before we do all that, maybe perhaps uh, give us a little bit of background of yourself, kind of your origin story. Sure. So I started uh, Uncommon Goods uh, back in 1999, so uh, 21 years ago, and I had always, ever since I was a kid, dreamed of being an entrepreneur, got out of college, uh, thought I was going to start my own record label, but uh, decided I'd first work for a, uh, a record label, or now is maybe called a music label, since there aren't very few vinyl records uh, anymore. And nobody, nobody wanted to hire me and uh, was unemployed, living with my parents and had a uh, high school friend who was working uh, in research on Wall Street. Uh, and he had encouraged me to take a look at that field. And while I was in college, had no interest in it. But when I was unemployed and living with my parents, I became a lot more interested and uh, ended up uh, spending 14 years uh, working in that field. And my job was to be a research analyst studying trends in the retail industry and making recommendations on what stocks people should buy. So I specialized in companies like Home Depot, Best Buy, AutoZone, and others. And um, while I was doing that work, unrelated to the work, just through a friend of mine, I learned about the internet maybe in 1993, 94, was totally fascinated by it. And when internet retailers first came on the scene, and I'm guessing it was 95, 96, I then started to write about it uh, as an important new channel. And after spending a, a couple of years doing that, I came to the conclusion that I'd much rather try to create a business than be a critic or write about uh, other businesses. Because I looked at the entrepreneurs that were starting internet businesses and said to myself, you know what, I probably know as much or as little as they do. It was a brand new world and, uh, you know, this new frontier and nobody was really an expert at, at that time. And, uh, it seemed really exciting. And so I studied the industry for a living and used that knowledge to come up with a concept that I thought could leverage, uh, the strength of the internet while not having really strong store-based competition. And somewhat by accident, I ended up at a craft show in Washington, D.C., and saw this meeting of buyers and sellers at the Smithsonian craft show. 
and realized what an inefficient market it was and how much better it could be for both buyers and sellers if that crash craft show were opens 24-7, 365 days a year where you could return products you didn't want. Uh, the store was always there. It wasn't just in a week, on a weekend in April. And so that was when I decided to uh, take the plunge. That was April of 1999. I had to give three months notice to my employer and then uh, I was on my way. Wow, that's amazing. I think it's also important to note that um, Uncommon Goods is a B Corporation, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, we're a founding B Corporation from 2007. Yeah. That's awesome. Maybe give a little bit of uh, background to what that means for the listeners that don't really know too much about that. Sure. I, I would say it's kind of a funny story. I was, I was at a trade show once uh, in the early days of the company, and one of the vendors who was pitching their product had a big banner up that said, we donate 10% of our profits. And so I asked the vendor how much money they had donated the prior year and she told me, well, actually, her business was unprofitable, so they didn't make any contribution. But if I ordered from them, they might help become profitable, and then they'd donate money. And to me, that was indicative of the problem with some people call it greenwashing, but lots of folks who claim to be socially responsible, but maybe their actions don't. Uh, back up their words. And the idea of B corporations are essentially a good housekeeping seal of approval where you're effectively audited for your environmental and social responsibility claims and uh, are evaluated every three years on issues like diversity within your organization, pay, what does the highest paid person make relative to the lowest paid person? Do you pay a living wage? Um, what are the demographics of your leadership team? Uh, what's your environmental footprint? All of those uh, uh, types of issues and questions. And the main concept is that a business uh, should not only be focused on making money, you should also be focused on people and the planet. You have lots of incredibly successful uh, business people financially who leave environmental and social carnage in their wake. And then in their waning days on the planet, they say, oh, let me uh, name these buildings after me and donate all this money. And my, my view, and I think the view of B corporations is to truly be sustainable, make your business uh, responsible for its environmental and social impact. Absolutely. No, I love that, David. Um, yeah, I don't think it has to be mutually exclusive to have a profitable business and also one that positively affects the people and the planets and um, have sustainable practices as well. Um, but my question would be, what's kind of the biggest thing that Uncommon Goods does that maybe consumers don't know about? Um, I would say advocacy around workers' rights. So we have been very active, uh, particularly in New York State. I, I worked for a number of years on a national level and found that it was very difficult to uh, get changes made in the law. But within New York State, 
much easier. So two issues related to the workplace that we were really active in and I think impactful uh, were, number one, getting the minimum wage raised in New York State, and as important to me, having it, number one, different in different parts of the state. So in higher cost parts of New York State, uh, you have a higher wage, whereas prior to that, it was the same whether you were in New York City or in a rural Adirondack community, which makes no sense. And the second thing that was changed was indexing it to inflation. And so, uh, at least for a number of years, the minimum wage was uh, rising uh, with inflation, at least in some parts of the state that has not been uh, fully implemented. And now it's flat at 15 in New York City. And so, my hope is that 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 change will will happen as well. But I would say that's something that we're less known for. Uh, effective September 1, we pay a starting wage of $18 an hour for our warehouse workers. And we have our whole operation under one roof, which in New York City, which is pretty uncommon. Absolutely. To switch gears a little bit, uh, Dave, um, we mentioned New York City, and that's kind of been the hub for the last hundred days with the pandemic and the protests and all that. But uh, for you personally, what's kind of been the biggest struggle or challenge uh, for you the last, say, three or four months? So I'd say there have been two major challenges. One is, as you said, we were the epicenter of the pandemic back in March. And we shipped 80% of our inventory product uh, typically out of Brooklyn. And we had some team members uh, getting sick. Nobody had tested positive for COVID. And I had to decide whether or not to keep uh, our warehouse open. We shut our office down because everybody could work remotely if they were working on a computer. But if you're physically picking and packing orders, you can't do that from home. And so... Uh, I made the difficult decision in March to actually shut down our warehouse, and we had it closed pretty much for three months. And we transferred inventory to other partner warehouses that we work with, uh, one in the Midwest and one on the West Coast. Uh, but we gave up about two-thirds of our assortment, two-thirds of the product that we sell uh, was not available for sale until pretty much late July uh, from March. And so that was, that was a tough decision to make, but it was one where I wanted to focus on the health and safety of our team members uh, first. And so that, that was a very difficult uh, decision to make. We've never done that uh, before. We stayed up and operational during 9-11, um, but this was just something where... Uh, you know, we have people living in multi-generational homes, and I did not, uh, even if you know our team member uh, was not high risk, we had a number of folks whose spouses or parents or grandparents were high risk and just did not want to take that chance. Um, so that, that was one issue. I would say the second issue, uh, uh, you mentioned the protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, and that's that's also been a difficult uh, issue in that we've been very involved 
as a company, as I mentioned earlier, in policy issues that relate to the workplace. However, um, with the Black Lives Matter movement and racial justice, we were getting asked to get involved in areas that impact the workplace and also broader society. And that was something I was, I felt unqualified for uh, and uh, honestly pretty uncomfortable uh, wading into uh, politics. I've always wanted to have a big tent at Uncommon Goods. You know, we, I, I believe in economic and social justice, but I also believe that we should have Democrats, Republicans, what have you, be be open to whomever working at the uh, at the company. So that that was a tricky issue to navigate. Um, I spent and continue to spend an enormous amount of time on the issue, learning. Uh, and relearning, you know, I thought I had a pretty uh, uh, aware and progressive mindset, and there was a ton that I didn't know and that I don't know, and realized that there's a heck of a lot more that we can can do. And one of the things I've really tried to do is focus on things we can control. So. You know, if we're supporters of paid family leave, we're supporters of a higher minimum wage, let's make sure we walk the walk. Similarly, as it relates to racial justice, we took a look at our assortment and only about 1% of our vendors were Black-owned businesses, which is unacceptable. And I could make excuses. Hey, we go to the trade shows, we look at products that are submitted to us, and we're not discriminating. That's what's coming in. Okay, that's who we see at the trade show. But the uh, awareness that I gained from thinking a lot and reading a lot and listening to a lot over the past few months was that's not enough. You know, that's that's not how you create a just society. That's not how you level a playing field. And this is not lowering the bar in any way. Our customers will keep us honest on is this product compelling? But we've got to perhaps work a little harder to find the Black-owned vendors. And if we do that, those are going to be uncommon goods, okay? It's harder for us to find. It's harder for anyone else to find. And if it's compelling product, it's going to sell really well, and it's going to be uh, great for our business. And so we took a pledge uh, middle of this year to say 10% of our new vendors for all of 2020 will be Black-owned businesses. And we're expecting to onboard 250 businesses, new vendors for the year. And we've already lined up uh, 25 Black-owned businesses and are in the process of getting their products live on the site. So that's that's one initiative we took on. And another one was a scholarship and internship uh, program through the Thurgood Marshall uh, College Fund with uh, public colleges and universities that are uh, uh, historically black. And so we're going to fund scholarships and then have those students uh, have paid internships at Uncommon Goods. So those are are things that I felt we can control as a business, um, still have our big tent, and uh, hopefully have a positive impact. Absolutely. No, I love that, Dave. Um, control what you can control. And um, 
Yeah, I love the initiatives uh, Uncommon Goods has taken uh, with the 10% new vendors and the paid internships. Even the uh, intestinal fortitude, I like to call it, to shut down uh, the uh, warehouse um, and have two-thirds of your product unavailable. That must take a lot of, um, again, intestinal fortitude. But for you specifically, Dave, what's kind of uh, unique skills that's led you to become such a uh, decisive decision maker and um, successful leader. Well, for, first of all, it's it's kind of you to say that, but I don't know that I'm that decisive. I agonize a lot over uh, over decisions, and honestly, probably take too long to make a lot of decisions. But um, I don't know that I have any uh, any superpower. But if I did have one particular strength, I would say it's persistence. Um, you know, things in general in life have not come that easy to me. Uh, a lot of, uh, what I've gotten, I've had to work really hard for. And, uh, as a result of that, I have practice in not quitting. And, uh, that's, that's been really important in this business. You know, this was not a instant, just add water success. It took us, uh, about six years to, uh, really make a meaningful profit in the business. And I took no salary for the first six years of the business. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. A lot of our listeners are uh, business owners or even um, aspiring entrepreneurs. And having you say that, that it's a practice of not quitting and you're going to take your bumps in the beginning phases. And it's not a get rich quick type of uh, uh, scenario that you do have to put in the work. Yeah, the one, one thing I would add, though, is there are times when you should quit, okay? And, you know, I was one of the lucky ones who was persistent, but I was seeing signs. So even though the company was losing money, our revenue was continuing to grow, our advertising costs as a percent of sales were continuing to come down. So there was positive... Uh, there was validation of the business model or increasing signs of that. I think blind belief is dangerous and, you know, knowing when to quit, uh, is important. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think, I think persistence can be a, uh, a double-edged sword and can turn into stubbornness at times. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. There's uh, definitely a fine line between persistence and almost delusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like you mentioned, once you start seeing that positive uh, business metrics going up and you're slowly trending upward, then you know you're onto something and that you should just continue on your path and um, keep working. Yep. So I want to switch gears just a little bit. Um, I'll get maybe into more um, tactical business or uh, whatever you want to call it strategy. But uh, for you, from your perspective, Dave, how's the industry changed from when you first started um, to now? And industry defined as e-commerce or internet retail? Exactly. So we were, I wouldn't quite call us outcasts or outlaws when I started back in 1999, but it was definitely the fringe. Okay. And so when I told people about my idea for uncommon goods back in 1999, you know, I, I remember two lines of reasoning why it would fail. One was only men were on the internet. Women were not shopping online. And number two, 
nobody's going to buy a product like yours, you know, handmade products, what have you, without being able to touch and feel it. And so there was a huge amount of skepticism. One of the biggest negatives at the time was fear of credit cards, uh, credit card numbers being stolen, you know, fraud. And so a lot of people didn't trust uh, the internet. Dial-up was the predominant, you know, 56K was actually the predominant form of uh, um, connectivity. You know, you didn't have cable modems, nobody had T1s or T3s, what have you. And so it was a very, very different world. Um, Google didn't exist. You know, there was no video. Um, it was, uh, it was a very different world, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Very bare bones almost, if you will. Yeah. Um, where do you see the industry continuing to go? Obviously, um, there's so many retailers now with the advent of Shopify and other e-commerce platforms, but from your perspective, Dave, where do you see, um, yeah, just the industry going in the next five, 10, 15 years? Um, I would tell you that I honestly don't know. I think the general trends that I've seen over the last 25 years of being involved in this industry are going to continue, which there are three main drivers in retail. It's service selection and price. And led by Amazon, I think we'll continue to see improving service, whether it's faster delivery, more knowledgeable salespeople, automated bots that can answer your questions. I just think the service component uh, is going to continue to improve. I think the site experience also as part of that, you're going to continue to have faster and faster websites, uh, richer imagery, augmented reality, things like that, I think will uh, increasingly be part of the experience. Um, in terms of selection, uh, I think you, you know, you've seen a lot of these, uh, so-called digitally native vertical brands. I think it's going to be easier and easier to, uh, create new brands and new stores around those brands, uh, online. Um, I don't, you know, I, I think Amazon, and companies like that, these platforms with massive assortments, I think they have a place. But I also think it can lead to customer fatigue or exhaustion, just being overwhelmed by too much choice. And I think companies like ours that offer an edited assortment with a point of view uh, will continue uh, to succeed. And you know, similarly on price, I think price definitely matters, but it's not the only thing that, that matters. I think, uh, the quality of the product, quality of the service, you know, we offer a lifetime guarantee on everything we sell. You can return, uh, anything, uh, that you buy at uncommon goods, barring that it's, uh, something you customized. I think those kinds of things will continue to, uh, to be important. Absolutely. And I love how you mentioned price isn't the only deciding factor for uh, customers. Um, I know you're a competitive positioning um, expert, if you will, or have tons of experience there. Um, and I always like to say that competing on just price is a race to the race to the bottom. But uh, from your experience, how do you 
position your brand or even uh, business to really stand out for the competition. Cause obviously um, with online retail, the set, the market's becoming more and more saturated as, as, as we speak. So how do you position your brand or company to be one of those uh, ones that stand out? So it's really in our name and our brand promise, which is you're going to find products at uncommon goods that are uncommon and hopefully you think they're good or even great. So, you know, we're pushing close to 50% of our sales now are exclusive products, things you can only find at uncommon goods. And, you know, that's a big change versus 10, 15 years ago when we started the company, we both lacked the buying power. We didn't have an in-house design team the way we have uh, today. And, uh, you know, we didn't have much in the way of competition. So exclusivity was not a focus. Today, we recognize that for the customer to shop with us, she's got to be able to find something that she's not going to find on Amazon or for that matter, anywhere else. And so that's, I would say that's the single biggest factor. If you look at retailing as a three-legged stool, selection, service, and price, we're, we feel we can win on selection, on service. There are some elements where I feel we do phenomenally well, but we are not going to beat Amazon in getting a product to a customer in an hour. That's just not, not the, the battle we're going to win on. And then on price, we have to charge a fair price. We will not charge a higher price uh, than somebody else for the identical item. But if you factor in that, you know, 65% of what we sell is made in the U.S., 50% is handmade, you're going to be able to find cheaper functional equivalents than what we sell. But I like to think of a lot of what we sell as functional art, and you're buying it for the aesthetic, not just the function. Absolutely. I just wanted to step back a little bit. Obviously, you mentioned Uncommon Goods was founded in 99. Um, and I, I'm, for me personally, I love the come up story and kind of the grind and uh, the learnings you learn on the way. Um, but for you personally, what's kind of been the, I hate calling it failures, but um, the learning opportunities that you've learned uh, through your uh, building of the brand and the company? Um. I think probably the biggest one is worry more about the customer than the competition. And what happened was when we started the company, we had no exaggeration, probably 30 competitors, almost all of whom were venture capital backed with multiples of the money that we had and it felt like we were in a race. Okay. You know, sort of, you know, Jeff Bezos of Amazon called it a land grab and they were sort of the leaders in this, you know, spending billions of dollars and we got caught up. I personally got caught up in growing the company faster, growing the size of the company and the speed at which we were moving at a speed where we really didn't know, I really didn't know what we were doing. Okay. And a lot of business, at least with me at the helm is trial and error. Okay. You try something, does it work? You know, think about, you know, if you're driving a car at 20 miles an hour and you take a wrong turn and you hit a telephone pole, 
all right, you're going to have a pretty big dent, but you're going to live to tell the tale. You're driving 100 miles an hour, you hit that pole, it's game over. And the lesson that I learned was that we have to grow at a controlled pace and make sure that we manage our cash because that money doesn't grow on trees. The venture capitalists, or in our case, individual investors who were supportive of the company in 1999, 2000, might not be around when you next want to have uh, a fundraise. And so we really had to uh, slow down our growth. We actually shrank from 35 team members down to five team members uh, in 2001. And uh, really had to grind it out for a number of years uh, after that, uh, recognizing we had to get the formula right and learn how to make money before uh, expanding the business. Absolutely. What's one question, Dave, that I'm sure you get tons of interview requests and um, business opportunities, but what's one question that you never get asked that you wish you would be asked? Um. So it's a little off topic, but you know, I read an article uh, the other day uh, written by uh, Nick, Nick Kristoff, and he was uh, theorizing about 50 years from now, what will people look back at and think was just unconscionable that was accepted, generally accepted by our society. And I would say it's the treatment of animals. So we are an animal, reasonably animal-friendly company. We do not sell any leather, feather, or fur. We are not yet vegan, but that's a, a place I'd like to get us. Uh, but I think if people really focused on how animals are treated in our society, uh, and I believe sometime in the future they will look back on uh, the treatment of animals and feel like it's uh, completely unacceptable. Absolutely. I feel like the, there's more of a trend uh, trending that way to, to be more aware of the environments in regards to the animals and also the, the actions we take on the planet. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's been true. And what I feel has been missing has been the people side of it. And I think with the black lives matter movement, but yeah, animals, uh, animals could use a little more love too, in my opinion, <laughs> a little bit more TLC. <laughs> um, speaking of trends, what's kind of the most exciting marketing trend that you see, um, right now? I think what you were just touching on the shoppers increased focus on purpose and meaning in their purchases. And there's a lot of opportunity for abuse uh, in that, but there's a lot of good that can, and I think does come of that. I mean, there are companies like Patagonia whose brand to a large extent is built on their environmental commitment. And the fact that shoppers care about that, I think is, is wonderful. So I, I find that really, uh, really exciting. Absolutely. From, from your perspective, though, what's, um, what are kind of some of the components of a successful brand? So you mentioned Patagonia with their values and, um, yeah, overall company values of the environment. But, uh, 
yeah, just for, for you personally, what do you think are the most uh, successful elements of a brand? So I think as you were touching on before, being differentiated, okay? Um, you know, there, there are no shortage of, of brands out there. And so how are you different from the rest? I think that's important. I think an element of that is consistency. You know, so if you're different in one way today and different in another way tomorrow, it's going to be a lot harder for the customer uh, to remember you. So I think uh, a point of view that's distinctive and sticking with it, being uh, being consistent with that perspective. Yeah, no, I love that uh, consistency and even authenticity. I think those two are a deadly combination when it comes yeah. to branding. Um, from, from also from your perspective, uh, I'm also curious to know, um, what's the difference between marketing and, uh, sales? What do you mean? How, like what, what's, uh, how would you categorize the relationship between marketing and sales? Are they, are they one in one or are they, um, like, how do you see them different from one another? If they are. So when you, when you say sales, cause when I think of sales, I'm thinking of revenue from a customer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So tell me if I'm answering, uh, uh, the question you're asking. I, I mean, to me, there are two ways to look at <clears throat> marketing. There's transaction driven marketing, which is often known as sort of lower in the funnel, uh, the consideration funnel. And then there's more branding-oriented marketing, which may be more around uh, awareness and identity. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just want to get your perspective on um, kind of the different uh, stages or even, um, yeah, just what uh, your personal relationship you think is between marketing and, um, sales. Yeah. I mean, I think both are important. You know, we as a fairly scrappy, I mean, we're 21 years old, but I still think of us as a, as a startup, we're still independently owned and run. So we have no major corporate backers. You know, we've, we've got to justify all our spending. I think if anything, we've probably erred on the side of too much focus on the equivalent of last click attribution. So an example would be if we post an ad, a display ad, somebody sees that, that influences the customer, but they don't go directly to our site and click on it. But then they do a Google search a few days later and they remember uncommon goods from that search. And so when we show up, let's say in the paid search results, they click on that uncommon goods ad and then buy something. If we gave a hundred percent of the credit to that Google ad, that's, you know, so-called last click attribution, we would be undervaluing the display ad or perhaps some branding video that we did or some PR that we did. And I think both are important. I would say when we were struggling for survival, we didn't have time for, uh, or money for branding. I would say today we're investing more in it, but, uh, 
I'd say as a company, we generally lean pretty heavily on uh, a sales-oriented marketing approach. So I, I'll oppose a hypothetical to you then, Dave. Let's, let's say you are given an extra 50% more budget. What type of things would you invest in and why? Within marketing or anything? Just anything to help build, help build the business and brand. Probably on the merchandising side. Uh, probably, I mean, one of the things that we've looked at is building more uh, or investing more in proprietary merchandise. So maybe we work with an artist and designer coming up with a product and their strength may be design. It may not be uh, production. You know, can we actually in Brooklyn uh, create the product? And so that's something that we're uh, we're looking at, and I'd say uh, you know it's also with a focus on exclusivity. If we're involved in the design and the production, I would say there's there's an opportunity there. So I, I would say that that's that's one thing. Another would be figuring out how to get the product to the customer more quickly. You know, again, we're not going to beat Amazon. We're not going to try to match them with one hour. Uh, delivery, but you know, if we can shave uh, a few days off delivery time, it's certainly going to please our customer. Absolutely. Well, I only have a couple more questions here for you, Dave. Um, one one topic I did want to touch on real quick because I know you're a, you're an expert at it, but uh, um, you mentioned service selection and price are kind of the pillars of a successful online business and. I was, I was curious as to know what, how, or how do you create a great customer experience? I think it starts with empathy, you know, both literally and figuratively put yourself uh, in the customer's shoes and never be satisfied. Okay. Always assume the customer is right. Uh, sometimes she's not, but if you start with that empathy and assumption that she is right, and you have a commitment starting with the CEO in pleasing that customer, uh, I think you can get to a great experience. You know, and you know, I, I remember I uh, I got a gift of a shirt from my wife from LL Bean, and uh, I have rather bony elbows. And within no time, I had worn holes through the elbows of these flannel shirts. And it happened within a matter of months. I mean, this was not years. I didn't wear the shirt every day. And I thought, wow, that's not acceptable. So I put them, I had two shirts, put them in my closet because uh, I was you know, really busy at the time. And I was going to get in touch with L.L. Bean and get those shirts uh, returned. And finally, sometime later, I was cleaning out my closet, uh, found those shirts, took them to the office, uh, and called LL Bean up and they couldn't find my order. And they said, well, our records only go back seven years. Is it possible it's older than that? And I said, I really don't think so. Well, it turns out it was something like nine years old and 
they said, do you still want to return it? And I felt kind of sheepish about it, <laughs> but the customer service representative said to me, if you're not satisfied, we're not satisfied. And I said, well, truth be told, I sat on this for a long time, but I really wasn't satisfied with the quality. And she gave me a credit and I remembered that. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of mindset, which is we're not happy unless the customer's happy, uh, is, uh, a great North star for driving your customer experience decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny how you remember, you remember kind of the, um, I don't want to say little things, but things like that just really resonates and it, it makes you drawn to the brand and even the company. So it makes you want to, um, purchase more, buy more from them. Hopefully. I mean, honestly, in that situation, I have not purchased a lot from L.L. Bean, but uh, <laughs> I still think it's the right thing to do, you know, because for, you know, I was, I was not an active shopper beforehand, but if I were and I had that experience and they didn't stand behind the product, that would have been the end for me. So, you know, you're, you're going to get collateral damage giving money away that doesn't have an ROI, and I'd be a great example of that with L.L. Bean, but I think you have to do that because you're not going to be able to identify which customer uh, is a potential long-term winner. I think you just have to have those right policies. It's sort of like a store having clean bathrooms. Some customers care, some customers don't, but you got to do it for everybody. Absolutely. I can attest that I'm one of those customers that care. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> only a couple more questions here, Dave. Um, What's what? What are you proud of that maybe we haven't touched on in the interview today? Um, I'd say a couple things, and I don't, I don't know that I would say. I'm I'm always worried about being proud because uh, they say pride goeth before a fall. Uh, but two two good things I would say are number one: after 21 years, we're still an independent company. And I would say we're as true, if not more true to our values. And that doesn't mean we're anywhere close to perfect, but I feel like we haven't sold out. Uh, we haven't really compromised on our uh, initial, uh, initial values. And then also seeing a number of people uh, within our company grow and develop, uh, both within the areas that they worked. And then we've had a number of people who have transferred departments, whether they're warehouse workers who have become uh, software developers. But that's uh, that's been really great to see as well. Yeah, I really well, I really appreciate you guys' values and all the social good you're doing. Um, where can our listeners connect with you online? So obviously they can come check out uncommongoods.com. They can uh, send email to feedback at uncommon goods. And, uh, I work to read every, uh, every piece of customer feedback. I don't reply to every, uh, everyone. And, uh, if somebody wants to send an uh, email to me, uh, david.polotsky at uncommongoods.com. But, uh, I would say I'm, I'm not, uh, big on Twitter or other social media. I got a lot of other things keeping me busy. <laughs> you got a business to run. <laughs> well, I implore our listeners to um, check out Uncommon Goods. Uh, again, like I mentioned, you guys are doing great stuff. 
Um, how I like to end the podcast is the guests, um, obviously this is the marketing and branding podcast. So the guests say a phrase or a word to describe their brand. So my question to you, Dave, is what's one word or phrase that you would describe Dave Belotsky's brand? We're all out of the ordinary. <laughs> this episode of the CMO and Joe podcast has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more business strategies and tactics to help you create the profitable and successful business you've always dreamed of. And don't forget to rate and review so we can continue to bring you the best content. See you on the next episode.